Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to Talking Tudors episode 151. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. March's prize is a copy of The Carnival of Ash. Thank you to Rebellion Publishing for sponsoring this great prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson about a new exhibition that's opened at Hever Castle, entitled Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. In other exciting news, if you've always been fascinated by the life and times of Anne Boleyn and have dreamed of learning from leading Boleyn experts, including Dr. Owen Emerson from Hever Castle and Professor Susanna Lipscomb, I invite you to join 365 Days with Anne Boleyn, a year-long online journey of learning and discovery that I'll be leading in 2023. You'll find a full list of what's included and all other relevant details on my website. I do hope you'll consider joining us on this unique and immersive learning experience. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Mary Queen of Scots' embroideries and textiles is Claire Hunter. Claire has been a community textile artist, a banner maker and textile curator for over 20 years. She established the award-winning community sewing enterprise Needleworks in Glasgow in the 1980s. Threads of Life, the history of the world through the eye of a needle, 
was her first book. It was warmly received, reaching the Sunday Times bestseller list, chosen as Waterstones Book of the Month in Scotland and BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week. It was also the joint winner of the Sultai Award for First Books. Claire lives in rural Scotland and her latest book is Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Claire. How are you? I'm very well, Natalie. Thank you for inviting me on. Yes, I've been looking forward to our chat. So I suppose a good place to, to begin would be just you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Uh, well, I'm Claire Hunter. Uh, as you can hear from my accent, I'm Scottish. Uh, I grew up in Scotland. Uh, but basically, my background is in textiles, both as a banner maker and a community textile artist and a curator of textile exhibitions. Um, and in the 1980s, I set up a community sewing enterprise in Glasgow called Needleworks and that was really working with people in the most kind of marginalised communities um, making um, wall hangings and banners that told of their activities, their histories, their concerns and so I've always been interested in the social and political aspects of needlework and um, in uh, 2019 my first book was published which is called Threads of Life and that explored across cultures and centuries the, the political, emotional and social significance of needlework and it was a surprising success. Uh, people loved the book. It became the Sunday Times bestseller. It, it, it was on BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week. Uh, it won the Saltar Prize for first book. And so I was amazed that it had that response. Uh, and then I began work on my next book, which is about Mary Queen of Scots and uh, her textiles. Yes, and that is the book that we're, we're going to focus on today. So it's called Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. And it was actually published this month, I believe, because I'm still waiting on my copy to arrive, eagerly awaiting my copy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this particular book and the, the novel way in which you actually approached this study. Well, when I was writing Threads of Life in chapter three, which is called Power, Mary Queen of Scots was the kind of central figure. And so the research I did for that chapter just really began to fascinate me, partly 
because of her own story, which of course is highly dramatic, but also because there was so much archival material that was related to the textiles she was using in both her personal and her political life. It, you know, as, as interior decoration, the clothes she wore, what she gifted, and indeed when she went, went into captivity in England, where she was for 19 years, the embroideries that she created. And it seemed to me there was another way, although there are hundreds of books written about Mary Queen of Scots, then it seemed to me that this was actually a, a novel way of exploring Mary's experiences and her emotions, you know, looking at how she used her textiles, what she was trying to say through her textiles. And so I embarked on an MA in historical research because, of course, I didn't want to be laughed out of court by proper historians. Um, so I embarked on an MA on historical research. I started to do that research. And as I continued on with it, I really felt there's a book in this. And so eventually a book came to be. You mentioned that Mary's story is, of course, incredibly dramatic. Were you always interested in her story? And what aspects of her story really drew you? Well, you know, in Scotland, you know, as a girl growing up in Scotland you know, at school, of course, we learned a little bit of Scottish history. But in the main, it was the history of men. Very few women featured. Mary Queen of Scots was a rare exception, as was Flora MacDonald, who saved Bonnie Prince Charlie from, uh, helped him to escape. So those were the two central figures for girls in my day. And uh, and then, of course, we got, you know, in, in time, there were films about Mary Queen of Scots. We had the Netflix Rain more recently, which was a fantastic, you know, series, uh, which kind of updated fashion of the court. But I thought it was I thought it was wonderful. And uh, 50 episodes and she was still in France. So so basically, I think maybe as a child, because of that, and also we did a project, which was a fabric collage project. And I was tasked with sewing Mary. And you know what it's like when you're, you know, you're small and you're you're given into your care as some figure or, or whatever. And so I suppose I always felt that Mary was special to me. Well, do you still have that that you made when you were younger? I don't know. Oh. No, it became part of this big wall collage that was in the classroom. Right. Yes. But I do have, you know, there used to be these little, uh, which um, were called Peggy Nisbet dolls, which are these beautifully costumed historical dolls that came in kind of cardboard boxes with kind of cellophane fronts and you could peek through and see the beautiful doll attired and it's kind of velvet etc and um and I always longed for one of those dolls but I could never afford it and when I started working with Mary I was very lucky in a charity shop to find the Peggy Nisbet doll of Mary and that that sat beside me as I wrote my book you know so I kind of reclaimed her in my life you know in the in doll form you know as an inspiration to the book so they are lovely those dolls I was gifted a set of the oh. of the wives of Henry the 8th, which I love. Oh, they're one of my the yes. oh, they're one of my prized prized possessions. And actually, funnily enough, I was at a garage sale many years ago here in Sydney and mm. I found Henry, Henry the oh, Eighth. And oh. I thought about leaving him there. I thought, oh, he was missing a foot as well. And I thought, yeah, that serves you right. But I in the end <laughs> I brought him home and he kind of sits there looking at all the all his wives. <laughs> and I love the fact that Peggy and Isbert created these dolls as a little collection. So, you know, amongst the Mary's, Mary dolls, there's a there's two versions of Mary. So there's a, a Mary, you know, as, as the Scottish Queen, also Mary as the captive in England, but she also did other figures. So you've got John Knox, you've got, you know, you know various figures in her life. So you could create this little narrative through the dolls and play act. Did you ever play act with your six wives of Henry? No, VIII? maybe I should. That might be a bit of oh, fun. I think you should, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, do you want to tell us a little bit, Claire, about the actual important role 
role that textiles played at royal courts. They were, of course, incredibly highly esteemed. So why was this? Well, of course, in the 16th century, then it was a visual culture. And in that sense, textiles captured, if you like, the spirit of the age, because they were what was, you know, interiors were festooned in, in textiles. They hung around the walls. They were they were embroidered carpets, table carpets, bed hangings, which had, you know, hundreds of different pieces to them, valances and bed covers and etc. And so it, in a sense, textiles were like pages in a book. They were the places where you could script your narrative and particularly tell of wealth and status and of who you were, your identity. And for those people who were the elite or for those people who were aspiring to it, then textiles were the most potent way of expressing who you were and who you wanted to be. Yeah, and specifically, how did Mary actually use the different textiles to to exercise power and to advance her own political agenda, I suppose? I think what I found interesting when, when I started writing the book, I thought I was writing a book about textiles, but actually by chapter three, I thought actually I'm writing about the agency of women in the 16th century, women rulers particularly. And for them, textiles were a way through which they could express their own authority uh, by through using their own monograms or their own emblems. Uh, they were a way that they could woo potential supporters through gifting textiles. And they could also, um, you know, in terms of Mary, what I found really interesting was that when she first returned to Scotland in 1561, when she was uh, just 18, an orphan, already a widow, then she reclaimed the textiles of her mother, Mary de Guise, who'd been deposed as a regent in Scotland and Mary de Guise had died. And basically one of the first acts Mary did was to take out of the wardrobe store, her own mother's clothes and some of her wall hangings and reinstate palaces and castles of Scotland as a way of asserting her female lineage, royal lineage, but also as a way of reclaiming her mother and her own her own power of, of expressing, you know, as I say, that that, that woman's authority, which um, had been, you know, with major keys to pose, had been eroded um, within the, the Scottish court. So that's one of the ways. I mean, one of the other ways made it, it was at her first parliament in Scotland in 1563. Uh, she spent a vast amount of money on bedecking herself out in the finest of purple velvets, which of course is a royal colour, and also dressing her ladies. Now, Mary Queen of Scots was not a small woman. She was five foot ten, which in those days was, a, you know, she was very statuesque. And so you can imagine this cavalcade of women, young women, just 18 or younger. You know, her four Marys that were the same age as Mary or slightly younger. So this posse of young women moving through the streets of Edinburgh, sparkling in their jewels, wearing their, their purple, wonderful clothes with their long trains, which they introduced to Scotland. And what they were doing at, through that was asserting female power. And it must have been a startling sight. Interesting that you mentioned that she almost like revived her mother's memory through these textiles. And of course, it's very similar to what Elizabeth did as well with her own her own mother, which is which is quite interesting. Let's talk about the, the role that needlework actually played during Mary's long captivity. You said, I think, 19 years. She's she's basically under house arrest in England. What what role does the needlework play in this? Well, embroidery at that time was an elite women's pursuit because the materials it used uh, were very expensive to buy. 
silk thread, you know, and, and finer needles were coming into the market because of the expansion of the trade routes. So, so actually it was, it was possible to do finer needlework. And basically women used it really as a form of writing, you know, in the days where again, you know, there was a big debate going on about women's capacity to rule, about women's right to rule, that women were driven by passion rather than by, you know, acumen and knowledge. Then women used their needlework to set down their knowledge, their botanical knowledge, and they set their family history through emblematic um, symbols, also their thoughts through the kind of imagery they chose, which of course all were symbolic in the 16th century. So you could create these kind of puzzles that people could unravel. And that was really important for women because they knew that what, although they were writing correspondence and poetry, etc., then they couldn't actually rely on the fact that their writings might be conserved and that that expression of theirs would be preserved uh, for posterity. But interesting enough, fabric was so costly that there was a much greater chance that it would be kept and held and kept precious simply because of its monetary worth. And through that, they had a chance that their voices would continue to be heard. Yes. And, and let's talk about some of those symbols that were used in these needlework panels that Mary and her household produced during her captivity. Tell us a little bit about them and maybe what their intended meaning was. Well, the obviously, as I say, the 16th century visual culture. It wasn't just a visual culture, it was also a culture that delighted in puzzles and conundrums. And so embroidery was like, much in the way as we unravel cryptic crosswords now, embroidery was a similar form to those people who saw it at that time. So uh, you would maybe have an image that might go alongside a motto or a proverb, and the relationship between those two would give you a particular meaning. So um, Mary used it, you know, in, in her own embroidery, uh, so, for instance, there's a lovely embroidery of which is just called a cat, and the the source of that was a um, a woodcut by Conrad Gessner, uh, which is the black and white woodcut of a cat, just of a cat. But in Mary's embroidery, she then inserted a little mouse beside the cat to then make a point about herself. This is when she was in captivity in England, to make herself, as a, basically register herself as Elizabeth I's quarry. And the, the way that Mary depicted it was that she had the cat, but the, the cat's um, paws, or one of its paws, is very firmly pressed down on the mouse's tail. And also, uh, she coloured her cat. So while the original woodcut is black and white, Mary made her cat ginger therefore personifying it as the red-haired elizabeth and then her little mouse is very sadly a little lumpen stolid little mouse and it kind of again evokes mary's humiliation and her deterioration at that point as a captive in england so although you've got what seems to be a very innocuous and rather charming picture of a cat and mouse actually it's a comment on mary's captivity and her own feelings at that time other people used their own emblems uh, so Catherine of Aragon had the emblem of a pomegranate um, and that could be then adopted by others. So when she was, for instance, absent for court because of uh, lying in for the birth of, of one of her children, then her ladies danced in front of Henry VIII wearing costumes embroidered with pomegranates. And that was in order to keep her presence alive in court while she was absent. And as you said, Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I's mother, her emblem was a falcon. And so Elizabeth I sometimes then wore an embroidered falcon to again keep the 
presence of her mother, who had, of course, been beheaded alive in court. And in a sense, as Mary Queen of Scots did with Mary de Guise's clothes, then reassert her mother and bring her back into court life through the wearing of her emblem. Um, so these things were uh, puzzles that only the educated could really totally decipher because they had biblical, classical, allegorical references within them. And now we can't we can't read them all now. We've lost many of the, that knowledge and that kind of ready knowledge that means that you could just look at something and you would have to spend quite a lot of time to unravel the total meaning behind things. There's a lovely book by Michael Bath, a Scottish historian called Emblems for a Queen. And he's looked at Mary's embroideries and done some fantastic research in, in showing what lies behind those. And so, for instance, one which is called A Bird of America, which again is a, a picture of a exotic bird. Basically, he shows how that actually is a repository of memories for Mary, that she didn't embroider it just simply because it was a nice image of this bird, of this exotic bird. But in fact, in her inventory of what Mary had left behind her in Edinburgh when she fled to England. She had a toucan beak from a bird from Brazil and basically there's a whole lot of connections to her own father, to her voyage to France which was captained by somebody who then helped Gesner get that original illustration. So lots of connections. So if anybody wants to know more about the meanings behind these, I really recommend Michael Bass's book. Oh that sounds fascinating. I feel another book purchase coming on. This happens to <laughs> me almost every That's time right. <laughs> oh goodness and are there many of the, of the textiles that mary produced herself do many of them survive they have remarkably nearly 500 years old natalie so you know it's astonishing they have survived and that they have survived is down to really bess of hardwick who was a redoubtable woman in her time and who was the wife of one of the guardians of mary during her captivity in england and indeed a collaborator with mary or embroidery. And Bess was also an entrepreneur and built some fantastic houses in England during that time. But she was also a hoarder, which is good news for us because she she hoarded her possessions. She was a great consumer as well as a creator. So she hoarded her possessions and sure they kept were, were kept within the family and left them in a will to the family. And because of that, you know, Mary's embroideries have survived. So there's a wonderful collection of the embroideries that she, uh, Beth Harvick and May did together at Oxburg Hall in Norfolk, which were thought to have been created as a set of bed hangings, but were never assembled during the two women's time and were later assembled. Uh, there's also some couple of Mary's embroideries at um, Best of Hardwick's Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire, which again, like Michael Bass's book, I highly recommend if anybody's visiting England, go to Hardwick Hall, one of the most extraordinary, wonderful buildings uh, of the time. Um, and there are two of Mary's embroideries in the uh, Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh, which they acquired in, in, in the 1950s. There are a few, obviously, none of her clothes survived to our knowledge. And there's bound to be many, many other little pieces, maybe just as fragments, in attics and Yes. country houses etc I'm hoping that, that because of the book some other things might come to light but um, but generally you know because of their origins being with Mary Queen of Scots but also because Mary was a Catholic and of course you know because of the Reformation Catholics then in a sense safeguarded much more carefully what remnants they had of their faith so it is quite likely that in some of those older families Catholic elite families then there are as I say fragments left that are remnants of Mary so let's keep our fingers crossed and live in hope. Yes. 
Yes, yes, I do. I always even hope that something will be found in a cupboard somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely, well, there was this wonderful story. I don't know about if you know about the Bacton altar cloth. Do you know yes. about that? Oh, that is so yeah. good, isn't it? So, that's like so one of those stories that gives you gives you hope, doesn't it? That there exactly, are you know. And uh, so that in the skirt of Elizabeth I, which was had been remade into an altar cloth, that was discovered just a few years ago. And when the curators actually, or the conservators rather, when they brought it back to Hampton Palace in London and then unpicked it, the under side was still colour bright so they could really see the colours that were in that skirt and they are remarkable. Yeah that is it's amazing I absolutely love that now you mentioned of course Hardwick Hall are there any other historic sites associated with Mary that maybe you visited that you recommend people go to? Well of course there are hundreds hundreds of places where Mary is said to have slept now yes, that's part yes. of, people think that's because she was a gadabout you know who went off you know in jollies but actually in the court culture of the time then because and particularly because Scotland was such a kind of challenging country to travel through then the court used to do progresses usually twice a year um, to different parts of Scotland in order to hold local excises local courts where local matters could be dealt with but also so the population could see their queen or king and basically you know get a sense of who was ruling their country and so Mary went and progressed I think partly for her the claustrophobia of what was a very kind of male dominated court in Scotland after having been basking it's because she was in France for 13 years the basking in the, in the wide horizons of, of France the gorgeous gardens etc and the huge chateaus then being in what are much smaller although still sophisticated and, and culturally charming palaces of Scotland was very hard for her and also the cold was hard to deal with coming back to Scotland so she went and progresses and so yes she did sleep in a number of places because of those progresses uh, but also she was then imprisoned first of all when she was defeated by her nobles then she was imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle which is very atmospheric Linlithgow Palace where she was born is an extraordinary renaissance building that her father and grandfather then developed and and expanded to basically compete with the renaissance beauties of architecture that you could find in Europe and they did not a bad job there's some wonderful some beautiful places there Falkland Palace which is a small palace but again charming in itself and of course Edinburgh Castle and the Palace of Holyrood House. The Palace of Holyrood House I went to and was very lucky that the past and present creators gave me a private tour of the palace. Um, so it was really lovely to be there when it was silent and when you could just wander through those rooms because that's where more most of the dramatic events of Mary's life took place and you really get a sense of the environment that she was in because it is small it is beautiful but small and her chambers herself is just like you know her state bedroom two two tiny rooms off it one of which would have been a supper room one of which would have been her cabinet room where she did her business in terms of state papers and correspondence and then a little kind of outer chamber you know small outer chamber where she would have had more intimate gatherings and it's where the murder of her private secretary in her presence took place so the stain of Rizzio's blood, David Rizzio, her private secretary, is still there nearly 500 years on. So we're able to get be enthralled by the sense of history that those apartments give you. Oh, I absolutely love that. And, and nice when it's a smaller area because you know that you are literally walking in their footsteps. I think it's quite yes. a mind, mind-boggling thing, isn't it? 
Yes, and, and and unchanged, generally unchanged in terms of the architecture there. It's un, unchanged, and you'd think, you know, as you look through the the tiny leaded glass window into what would have been, you know, just a small vista of a bit of a garden, you think how much she must have longed for much larger outdoor spaces. And again, that's why she went. She was a great horse rider and loved falconry. So I think she loved galloping around the hills of Scotland and the glens and getting out into the wilder landscape that of, that it offered her. And Claire, obviously you've spent a lot of time immersed in, you know, the life of Mary Queen of Scots and her world. How would you sum up the woman that you came to know during this time? First of all, we have to remember that actually she was highly educated. She was highly accomplished as a musician, as a poet, but also she was brave. You know, she was sent off to France to marry as a prospective wife of the Dauphin at the age of five. Her father was already dead. She then was in France. When she got to France, then apart from her um, governess, who was Scottish, then her four Marys were sent, childhood friends, were sent away um, to be educated elsewhere. And she was then immersed in in the French court. So she then came to that alien culture at such a young age, was there for 13 years, married her Dauphin, became Queen Consort of France, and then the next year he died. She was 18. So suddenly there she was without a throne, and Catherine de' Medici, her mother-in-law, was not keen on Mary marrying what would have been Francois II's brother, Charles. And so Mary then returned to Scotland. And she came back, though, to Scotland. We're now already an orphan, her mother having died. She was an orphan. She had no kin there of her own. She had half-brothers and sisters, but there was nobody of her own status, no other siblings, no other cousins. And so she came back to Scotland, and she came to Scotland that was just in the rush of the Reformation, so where a Calvinist aesthetic was taking hold, and where there was already mistrust of this young female Catholic queen who was going to rule over them. And when she came back to Scotland, she had to then deal with not just, as I say, that distrust around her, which eventually became disloyalty, but also with the climate of Scotland, the harsh climate, severe winter she encountered. There was a thing called the Little Ice Age that was happening at that time. So it was very severe in Scotland. And also she came back into a very competitive male and aggressive male culture. And so she had to, I think it's extraordinary what she tried to do to, as I say, assert a more, a female culture that was still political, that was using diplomacy rather than embattlement to advance its cause, that was using conciliation rather than aggression to then create religious um, harmony. So although her politics are really dealt with, the way she dealt with her politics was trying to still keep for Scotland an important part placed on the Scottish and the political stage of Europe, but do that through other measures than war. And there were no wars fought during her Second World War by Scotland. Uh, There was civil war eventually because of the religious divide and because of of, um, the situation of Mary having to abdicate, etc. So eventually there was the Marian party and the King's party. So I call her brave. And then when she moved into captivity, again, you can imagine she fled to England to what she hoped was going to be the support and succour of her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, her hope for a soulmate only to find herself being dealt with as a political liability. And she remained imprisoned there for 19 years. She was 24 when she first moved into imprisonment in Lochleven, Scotland. And basically, she then spent her life without any intimate contact in terms of her own friends or her own supporters or indeed any kind of life with a companion. So living through those that those 19 years imprisonment and still remaining dignified, still remaining attached to, emotionally attached to France, to Scotland, and politically trying to still 
keep a purchase in some form in Europe as a queen. We're brave acts. And uh, so I see her as a very valiant woman. And ultimately, of course, she was executed by Elizabeth I for treason. And again, I love the fact that when she went to her execution, uh, when her ladies-in-waiting disrobed her, she was wearing red underneath, which was the Catholic colour of martyrdom. And it was her final dramatic act of bravado for me. It's an extraordinary story and a very moving one as well. And it just, I can't wait to read your book. It's made me so even more <laughs> keen than I was before. And I recommend everyone go and have a look. Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots in the Language of Power. Now, Claire, before I let you run away, there's something else we do to end the episodes. I mean, I just call it 10 questions to go. So the first one, what was the last film or even series that you have watched? Is uh, Succession with Brian Cox, the um, Scottish actor, which we, it, it, me and my husband absolutely loved, which is about a kind of family with uh, huge wealth. And the patriarch of the family is left to, with the dilemma of who to leave the wealth and the business to. But it's wonderful acting. It's very gripping. Wonderful. All right. And what is something, I'm sure there's lots of things, but what's something that you love about where you live? Well, of course, where I live, I live in a very remote glen in central Scotland, which is mountains and lochs and golden eagles and deer and everything, everything you think Scotland is. I think the thing I love most about it is it's called a place of thin air. It's a very ancient place. A place of thin air is somewhere where the expanse between the heavens and earth is thought to be thinner and so you're closer to a spiritual world and when we have the light like we have today you know when we have the glen bathed in this kind of very clear spring light then you really do get a sense that you are in somewhere somewhere that is very precious in, in, in terms of nature. I love that. I, obviously, I've, I've heard the saying, um, you know, where the veil's kind of thin, but I love thin air. That's such a great way to describe it. And perhaps just living where you live is relaxing, but I was going to ask you, what do you do to, to kind of relax and unwind? Well, of course, I sew, Natalie. What else would I do? Exactly, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so basically, I, obviously, I used to have a professional life doing sewing, etc. I no longer do that, but I still sew. I sew for, well, because sewing is so therapeutic, it's rhythmic, uh, and and so generally I've been doing, during lockdown, I've, I've been doing um, uh, quilts um, because I love that, you know, very simple running stitch that, again, you can gather your rhythm and just stay in, in kind of certain stillness with this kind of, with the textile kind of beginning to expand underneath your hands. It's a lovely feeling. So I sew, that's what I do. What is a favourite comfort food for you? My favourite comfort food. I think my favourite comfort food would have to be cheese on toast. It's I a make simple it the one, but my... it's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I make it the way my mother made it, which is with cheddar cheese, a little bit of English mustard and some milk, and then you mix those together and then you put it on the toast and then it all just melts into oh, this lovely... Yes, yum. So that is my <laughs> comfort food. That sounds good. I think I need to try that. And what about a favourite childhood book? or a favourite childhood toy? Well, favourite childhood book would be The Blue Door by Nesbitt, The Blue Door Venture. And it was a book that me and my two sisters read. It's about a group of children who then discover a small derelict building in their own village with a blue door and decide to change it into a small theatre and so during their summer holidays they then restore this not, not hugely but make it into you know make it into a small theatre and then start to put on plays and we just loved this idea of both the transformation of space but also the fun that these small little group had making their costumes deciding on the characters they would play and creating these plays and of course you know as in children's books they were all good at some 
something. So I can't remember their names now, but one was very good at sewing the costumes. Another one was very good at making the script up. You know, somebody else was very good at doing the lighting. You know, they all had different uh, different, um, skills they could bring to bear. So the Blue Door Venture for me. I've never heard of that. And that sounds absolutely perfect. I I might have to go and look for that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) What about if you could learn and if you had time to learn a new skill, what might you like to to do? You're great at sewing. Is there anything else that you'd love to learn? Uh, well, you know, I, I actually love all crafts, you know, it has to be said. So I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm kind of toying with basically making, you know, we've got we've got a, a garden where we are and I, I want to make kind of hair boxes and things out of recycled wood. Mm-hmm. And I, I originally, I trained in theatre, so I, I did a lot of stage management. So I did learn basic carpentry skills. So oddly enough, I'm quite interested in, in, in picking up a saw again and seeing what I can make out of a saw. And uh, because I actually also love toy theatre, it probably comes from the Blue Door Adventure, yes, yeah. then I would really like to make my own working toy theatre with trapdoors and proper lighting. So I've got that as a project in my head. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You'll have to post some, some pictures if you, yes, if I ever if do, you do that. <laughs> and do you have any pets? We do. We have a little dog called Midge, and Midge is now about six months old, and uh, he's a very bright affectionate dog who is full of personality I would say uh, and very communicative so he lets you know exactly what he's feeling whether feeling that you're the most wonderful person in the entire world or you've just let him down hugely by not getting him giving him his, his treat you know when he expected one and so he's a, he he's, he's an absolute joy and obviously where we are we've got wonderful wonderful walks for dogs and so he's got a very good life here and we have very good life with him. Claire, what's an ideal Saturday night for you? Uh, right, so an ideal Saturday night for me is basically being at home, possibly with one or two of we've got twins, possibly them being free enough to join us, making a, a nice roast dinner, and then you know usually then uh, watching some old films of of Kim and Jamie when they were young. We've got many kind of lots of footage of them doing silly things up the hills. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and basically and watching some old films and laughing. Oh, that sounds really good. Perfect, actually. <laughs> and do you prefer ebooks or print books? Or print books. Yeah, me too. Print books. I do have, obviously, you know, in terms of, you know, sometimes, particularly when I was doing the research, then some books were so expensive to buy as print, I would then succumb. And because it was something that I just wanted to have a dip into to see yes. if there was any interesting information, I would get that as an ebook. And also, I think when you're traveling, it's very handy because you can't take all the books you want to read with you when you're traveling. So having ebooks is fantastic for that, that you can then just, you know, refer to them. But definitely, I love the feeling of a new book in your hands yeah there's few feelings like that I've gotten into audiobooks a little bit while I'm sort of traveling to work or that kind of thing but I still love holding a book and you know getting into bed and having a book that's really exciting and the last question Claire because it is Women's History Month I wanted to know about a woman who inspires you maybe someone other than Mary Queen of Scots and could be someone that's you know here now or someone from the past who would you say inspires you? Um, Well I think I'll have to say um, Nicholas Sturgeon, who's the first leader, the leader of, of uh, Scotland. Basically, I'm not a card-carrying member of the Scottish National Party, but during lockdown, it was fantastic. I mean, I've always been an admirer. I've gone to hear her speak a few times, and um, and she seems to be somebody who is very down to earth, very practical, and 
very steadfast in terms of trying to be a protector of Scottish interests, both at Westminster and further abroad. And um, and then during lockdown, you know, it was fantastic to have her every day giving a, a very uh, honest appraisal of what was happening and trying to keep us all willing to um, be as safe as we possibly could. And she did that by just asking us in a very um, straightforward way to continue to protect both the NHS and our own families uh, and the people around us through the measures that she was sorry she had to still enforce or the, the Parliament still had to enforce. And, you know, for Scotland, I mean, we're, we're still kind of, um, have still got some of the restrictions that have now been lifted in England. But I think she won our trust as a people that she was trying to keep us safe. And while we might chafe against those restrictions at times, then in actual fact, it made us feel safe yeah. to have her at the helm. And so I think I'll say Nicola Sturgeon. Now, the very last thing, I normally ask my guests for what I call a Tudor takeaway. In this case, I think maybe it has to be a Mary Queen of Scots takeaway or or something for our listeners to maybe explore after the show. You've given us a couple of great books that we can look at. Do you have another takeaway for us? Oh, yes. Well, I think actually um, the Mary Stewart Society website is a very good website to visit because it has a timeline, really useful timeline of Mary's life. And another one would be uh, the University of Glasgow has been doing a project called Memorialising Mary and on its um, website for that uh, there's a number of uh, articles uh, which are really interesting so they might be looking at Mary as she's depicted in RuPaul's drag show so it's it's very eclectic it might be something about Mary's uh, handwriting and, and her letters so there's a whole range of really interesting small five minute reads yeah, each one right. of them, but really, really interesting in, in different topics. So I, I, I really stress that as well. That is perfect. And I'll add links to those two on our show notes. And Claire, thank you again so much for taking the time to come on and chat with us. It's been incredibly enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Natalie, for inviting me. It's been great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music>